and tops throughout the Bible. You may not realize how many exciting things, exciting moments, life-changing moments actually took place on mountaintops of the Bible. So go ahead and, and start reading ahead and looking ahead at, at different mountains in the Scripture and see what all God did and accomplished there. This morning we're going to be in 1 Kings, uh, most of it in chapter 18, but just turn to 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, along in there, all right? Extreme is a popular word today. From extreme sports to extreme adventures, people are looking for mountaintop experiences to add a little zip and spice to their lives. Uh, I read of a Nepalese couple uh, who had an extreme wedding. The groom, who was a Sherpa and excellent mountain climber, led his bride and a group of 45 people to the summit of Mount Everest where he and his bride were the first two, and I think the only two who have been married on the summit of Mount Everest. It was a 10-minute ceremony up there before they began their arduous descent. I understand they had a hard time finding somebody to officiate at their wedding on the summit of Mount I, I can get that. That's extreme. Uh, I don't know if you've been following in the news, but if all goes as planned, sometime this evening, Nick Walinda, who is the, uh, a descendant of the Flying Walinda Circus family, the famous uh, family uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in America, uh, is going to attempt to cross the Grand Canyon. And you say, that's not a mountain. Well, it's kind of a mountain in reverse. All right? Uh, it goes down. But the, the wire is stretched across the canyon 1,500 feet to the canyon floor and a third of a mile across. And he's going to walk this to be the first person, hopefully, to, trans, to, to, to traverse the Grand Canyon on tightrope. Now, that is extreme. You talk about adding some spice to your life, that will do it. Now, I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament, one of my favorites, that is an extreme story. It takes place on a mountaintop, and it was designed to bring some spice, spiritual spice, to a dying people. The very story centers on one of my favorite Old Testament characters, the prophet Elijah. Now, I need to set the stage for this particular experience by giving you just a little bit of history. And I know what some of you are saying, oh, I don't like history. Well, just grab the pew in front of you and hold on. It won't take me long. But you need to know how we get to this point, all right? If I were to ask you this morning, who are the two greatest kings of Israel's history? I would expect you to say King David and then his son Solomon. They reigned for a total of 80 years, 40 apiece, and David begins his reign as king in the year 1010 B.C. So about 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, David is king on the throne. Eighty years later, at the end of Solomon's reign, however, Things are a mess in Israel, and the kingdom divides. So no longer do we have the nation of Israel as we did with 12 tribes. We now have two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There are 10 tribes that comprise the northern kingdom, only two that comprise the southern kingdom, which takes the name Judah. The capital in Judah is the city of Jerusalem. The capital then in the northern kingdom, which is collectively now called Israel, is the city of Samaria. We are barely 50 years into the history of the northern kingdom now, Israel, when this event takes place. Now, from one perspective, this is a grand time to live in the northern kingdom, Israel. 
Things couldn't have been better. The economy is great. Uh, Israel was at peace with her neighbors. Life was comfortable for the folks in the land. The wealth of Israel was great. The city of Samaria was beautiful, and everything economically and politically seemed to be on the upswing. But spiritually, the nation had tanked. Ahab comes to the throne. He was brilliant, daring, charming, and rich. He was everything you'd want in a king except honest and godly. Ironically, Ahab's name means God is a close relative. (laughs) He lived as if God was an enemy. And to make matters worse, to add to his foolishness, he chose to marry an idolatrous princess from a neighboring nation by the name of Jezebel who brings her ardent worship of Baal and the female counterpart Asherah into Israel. And what it does is it takes Israel out of their worship of God into the idolatrous relationship with these godless pieces of wood, stone, silver, and gold. As a matter of fact, Ahab's legacy is summed up in the Bible in this one statement. Verse 30 of chapter 16, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. What an epitaph. You got the picture now? Everything's good from an economic, political standpoint. Everything is terrible from a spiritual standpoint. One day, in in that environment, This man just shows up at the palace. He is the prophet Elijah. Without introduction, without warning, he's just there. And he has a 30-second sermon for King Ahab. Verse 17, chapter, or chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. And then he's out the door. In like a flash, out like a flash. And I know what some of you are thinking this morning. I wish we could get 10-second sermons on Sunday morning. How much richer our experience would be. Uh, over the last couple Sundays, uh, Elsa and I had a little over a week vacation, but they covered two Sundays. And so I sat where you sat and was reminded that sometimes a sermon is really a hard thing to sit through. So I have some sympathy for you uh, today, and I'll do my best to, to make it tolerable, to make it uncomfortable to sleep, all right? Dave Udaly, one of, our, one of the men here in the church, does a lot of fill-in preaching around the area. And Dave said that he uh, went to preach at one one little church, and, and he got up and he said, I have so many things to say, I, I don't know where to start. And some lady in the congregation hollered out, start near the end. <laughs> I wish she had been with us the last two Sundays where we were. That would have been good. Well, just as quickly as he had come, he is gone. God protected and provided for him in in a variety of ways over three and a half years, but Ahab couldn't find Elijah for anything. Water became more precious than gold. The crops all died. The land becomes desolate. Every creek and stream and river and tributary dried up. There wasn't any place where they could find stuff that hardly would sustain them. No food. The land, the nation quickly falls on hard times. You know what? You'd think, wouldn't you? That 
One year of a drought and famine would have brought them to their knees before God, certainly two years. But three and a half years later, they are no closer to God. They are still clinging to their idolatrous worship. Now, I know we don't practice idolatry like folks 3,000 years ago. We're far too sophisticated for that today. We don't bow down in front of wooden or stone or, or silver or gold images. But would you remember something this morning that idolatry is not defined by a statue. Idolatry is defined by anything that we put between us and God. Anything that keeps us from putting God first in our life becomes an idol. And, and, and I'd ask you this morning, what is that for you? What's keeping you from 100% commitment to God? Is your job so demanding that you cannot find time for spiritual matters? Or, or should I ask the question better this way? Do you use your job as an excuse to avoid spiritual matters? Because isn't that really it? Most of us don't work at jobs that are so demanding that we can't be spiritual. It's that we use our job as an excuse to say, oh, I just can't get everything done. I have no time for spiritual matters. I have no time for God in my life. Does participating in your favorite pastime keep you from participating in the fellowship of God's people? We all have things that we love to do, hobbies and, and, and pastimes that are, that are fun and enjoyable, but does that come before your worship of God? Have you as a parent used your kids as an excuse not to put God first? Have you been saying, oh, well, we're, we're raising our kids. We're just so tied up with our kids. We don't have time for God. For goodness sake, what kind of a signal is that sending to your children? What is that communicating to your kids? God's okay when you've got the time? What I'm saying is that there are so many things that can become idols in our life if we're not careful. Idolatry is basically this, simply pride and selfishness in disguise. I know we don't have idols of wood, silver, gold, or stone, but there are plenty of other substitutes in our culture for God that are just as ridiculous. Maybe we aren't as sophisticated as we think we are. Well, after an absence of three and a half years, Elijah makes himself known to the king, approaches the king. <laughs> I'm telling you, Ahab is not a happy camper at this point in time. And so they meet, and in 1 Kings 18, verse 17, when he, that being King Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah responded but you and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Oh boy, don't we look for somebody else to blame when it's our problem. Isn't it nice to say, it's your fault, you're the trouble in my life. I, are, are you like me, that when you're upset with yourself, when you're, when you're angry with yourself, you take it out on somebody else? You dump your load on somebody else you, 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 you perhaps yell at somebody else. Maybe it's somebody that's close to you. Maybe it's somebody that you love. Why are we that way? When, when we're mad at ourselves, why can't we just be mad at ourselves and leave everybody else out of the picture? It's because we love to have somebody to blame because we don't want to shoulder the responsibility for our own foolish choices and for our own sinful behavior. 
When we blame others for our own sins, it's our way of escaping personal responsibility. So I'm going to tell you, man up and admit to God and yourself your weakness and your desperate need for his help and your strength. Stop blaming other folks and you'll be on your way to a spiritually healthier you when you do that. Elijah set the ground rules for what was going to happen. He said to Ahab, all right. I want you to gather as many people as you can and take them up on top of Mount Carmel. Uh, There is a plateau uh, on this mountain range, and that's where he was asking them to gather. And take the people, take the 450 prophets of Baal, and you take the 450 prophets of Asher up there, and we're going to settle the question once and for all, who's God? Either the Lord or Baal. Now, this plateau uh, up uh, near the summit of of Mount Carmel is a huge area and and would absolutely be capable of holding thousands of people who would come up there uh, and and be a great place for this encounter. Besides that, up on this plateau at one time had been built an altar to God. Twelve stones had been placed there in an order representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's where worship was done and sacrifice was made before God. Those stones had been torn down and scattered. It was the people's way of saying, we're no longer interested in worshiping the Lord himself. And so up on that mountain they go. Now, (laughs) you got to think, the people are probably going up there with a lot of different attitudes. I I suspect a lot of people went up there angry. Elijah's going to be there. He's the guy that's kept us from rain for three and a half years. I want to get my hand, I want to give him a piece of my mind. And so they all go up that way. Some probably went up skeptical. Everybody went up curious. What in the world is going to happen on this mountaintop? And so they get to the mountaintop and... uh, and, and Elijah lays out the ground rules. And you're saying, okay, I, I don't get why God was so harsh with the people. I mean, a drought? No water, no crops for three and a half years? I wonder how many people suffered, maybe even died for lack of food during that. Why, why a drought? Why a famine? Ah, there's a good explanation. But you have to understand who Baal is. You know, idols always are in charge of something. And Baal happened to be in charge of, are you ready for this? Farming and storms. He was in charge of lightning and rain and crops and making everything grow. What better way to lay attack against Baal than to attack the ground and the rain? Now again, these people after a year of a drought and no rain and no crops should have said, you know, this this Baal guy, he, he isn't cutting it anymore. We need to get back to worshiping God. You'd have thought that would have happened. If that would have happened, they never would have had to have this contest up here. And so it's, this itself is an attack against Baal. And uh, so the, the guidelines for the contest are as these. Each, each group is going to have a bull. You're going to offer it as a sacrifice. You're going to pray to your God. And the God that answers with fire from heaven will be the true God. Now, here's another thing you need to understand is that Elijah gives deference to, to Baal again. The God that answers with fire and the prophets of Baal say, all right, this is his forte. He's in charge of lightning. He's good with fire from the sky. Okay. And, and then Elijah says, you can go first. God removes any excuse the people could offer when this contest is over to say, well, this really wasn't fair to Baal. Everything that he did was fair to the concept and their understanding of Baal. Well, they build their altar. They put the bull on the, on the altar, and they begin to hoop and holler and dance and, and pray and all the kinds of things all morning long. Now, folks, you've got to remember how bold Elijah is. He was one man, and he was standing against 450 prophets of Baal who all had knives. 
Plus that, you've got a multitude of people up there who are mad at Elijah for holding back the rain. I would have been over behind the rocks in the bushes hiding until it was my turn. Not Elijah. He's standing out there watching. Watch us all morning long. They get to lunchtime, and Elijah begins to taunt them. He said, hey, can you pray a little louder? I don't think he can hear you. Do you suppose he's still asleep? Maybe Baal is out on an errand. Maybe you need to wait till he gets back. Can you do anything to, to, to wake him up? And they begin to pray louder and dance harder. And they took their knives and they cut their bodies and hoping that their own bleeding bodies would dar all the fire from heaven and nothing happened. Well, about mid-afternoon, Elijah says, enough's enough. My turn. <laughs> and so he draws the people around him and he gathers up these 12 stones. And the people knew what they were. And he rebuilds the altar of God, places a wood on top of the altar, digs a trench around the bottom of the altar, and then lays the bull on top of it. And then he asks those who are standing by to take these four big earthen jars, fill them with water, and douse three times the sacrifice. And you say, well, where in the world were they going to get water if the streams and, the, and all had dried up? Oh, probably from the Mediterranean because the the uh, Mount Carmel mountain range jutted out into the Mediterranean, so they probably got the water from the sea, and, and it was full of salt. Of course, that's salt water, which would not have been lost on the people at all, because you see, God a long time ago had said, when you offer a sacrifice, you offer it with salt. Salt was so symbolic. Uh, salt is essential to life. It preserves, it heals, it cleanses, and most importantly, it represents the suffering. Tears are salt. It represents the suffering and the sorrow that goes along with sacrifice. This would not have been lost on the people. Then Elijah prayed. He preached short sermons, evidently, and prayed short prayers. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, that would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon when sacrifice was just ending at the temple. The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And without interruption, without a moment's in between, fire fell from heaven, and, and this was no ordinary fire. This was divine fire. It consumed the bull. It consumed the wood. It licked up the water that was in the trench, and it destroyed the stones. It actually burned the stones. There was nothing left. Verse 39, and when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And Elijah then commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. You say, oh, that's such a grisly ending to the story. That's such a painful conclusion. Why so drastic? Because sometimes, sometimes you have to cut out the cancer so the body will survive and get healthy again. The only way to bring new life is to get the dead out of the way. There was no way that they could now return to Baal. Down the road they would. But at this moment, God has removed every incentive to worship Baal. 
It was a life-changing moment for everybody, from the king to the people to the prophet himself. And I, and I want to know this morning, do you need a Mount Carmel experience? Does God need to turn your heart back to him this morning? Do you need to come face to face with, okay, I got to answer once and for all in my life. If the Lord is God, I must serve him. If something else or someone else is God, I need to go that way. But I have to make that call. I want to leave you with three things real quickly this morning out of the story. And the first one is simply this. Don't trust the crowd. Don't trust the crowd. When you grow up in a democracy, you, you, you kind of have this idea that the majority is right. But when you grow up in a monarchy, you, you, you are told that the king is right, and so you follow suit. I don't think it was all the king's fault at this point in time. I think the whole group of, uh, of the Israelites had just simply abandoned their worship of God. I think they and the king and almost everybody had just fallen in line with this worship of Baal. The people had turned away from God, and so he was trying to turn them back to him. It may have been the influence of neighboring pagan nations. It might have been the king's court and, and where he was going. It might have been their own spiritual boredom. Whatever it was, they had gone off down the wrong road. But can I remind you of this? What looks like a majority sometimes isn't. You got 450 prophets of Baal. Maybe you have a total of 850 if the prophets of Asher were there as well. And you got this one guy standing over here. And yet, who comes out the winner? Elijah. Can I remind you, one person who stands with God is always a majority over thousands who stand without him. Do not follow the crowd. Don't trust the crowd. Who you trust says a lot about you. Do you put your trust in your own wisdom? Folks, I've lived long enough to realize that I'm not nearly as wise as I thought I was and not nearly as wise as I need to be. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Perhaps you put your trust in the power of government. I've also lived long enough to realize that no matter how wonderful our country and how brilliant our constitution, government cannot provide those things that matter most relationships with others, forgiveness of my sin, faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and the gift of everlasting life. No government can provide those things. Don't put your trust in government. Put your trust in God. If you're not sure who you trust, let me take you to Proverbs 29, verse 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You want to be okay in this world? You put your trust in the Lord. And remember, when you stick with him, you're always a majority. Here's the second thing. Be prepared to challenge those around you. Man, I, I am just amazed at Elijah's ability to stand before an angry crowd and challenge them. You know, our responsibility in this world as Christians is to be a challenge to the life and the, and the practice of the world around us. Uh, idolatry is still out there. Uh, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 25. He talks about idolatry and he said they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. In other words, there are a lot of people who worship the things of this world, even the things of creation, nature around us, but they've lost sight of the Creator, and we need to be that turning point for them. We need to be that moment on Mount Carmel so that they will see that the Lord is God. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, through your actions and your words. 
I cannot emphasize how important it is that your actions support what you say you are and who you are. If you are a Christian, please live like it. Only God knows how many people have been turned off to him because of an inconsistent Christian who said one thing and lived another. Uh, in his book, The Christ of the Indian Road, E. Stanley Jones asked Gandhi how to naturalize Christianity into India. In other words, how can he naturally get the message of Christ into India? And Gandhi told him this. He said, I would first suggest that all of you Christians, missionaries and all, begin to live more like Jesus Christ. One of, the, one of the problems people have had down through the years with the Western world is that what they've seen and read about Christ, they do not see reflected in his followers. So I'm here to ask you, if you say you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then live like it, act like it. When you don't, it reflects poorly. On our Savior. But there may come a time when actions cannot substitute for words. Let, let me give you an example of the power of words. On March 23, 1775, a, colo, uh, a colonel of the Virginia militia spoke to the Virginia Convention uh, as they looked to getting ready for the revolution. And this is what he said. Why stand we here idle? If life is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what, other, what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, that's a pretty famous speech from American history, and if you've studied American history, you probably know that Patrick Henry is the author of those words, and he's been immortalized down through the years as the, as the author of that speech. How many of you know what Patrick Henry did during the American Revolution? Let me see your hands. I don't know either. I don't remember reading that Patrick Henry did this or that, but I'm telling you, his words still echo through the corridors of American history. Give me liberty or give me death. You see, sometimes words are powerful. Words have meaning. Words come to life and can challenge others. When he spoke those words, it changed the course of at least that convention, which then helped to change the course of American history. Uh, yes, your actions are important, but sometimes actions enough, Arnold, sometimes you have to speak up. Sometimes silence is golden. Sometimes it's just plain yellow. Sometimes you have to speak up boldly for Christ. It is to be winsome, but bold. And then pray for change. When Elijah got done, you'd have thought after an afternoon like that, he would have said, oh, Boy, am I wore out. Will somebody just bring me a glass of iced tea? I need to sit here on this rock and rest for a little bit. But he went back up onto the summit of the mountain and prayed. Prayed for the people. Prayed for rain. Prayed for a changed nation. Prayed seven times. Seven is a complete number. Reminding us that prayer is an important part, a complete part of our spiritual life. And at the end of the seventh prayer, he looked out on the horizon, and there was a cloud the size of a man's fist on the horizon. And he said, we better hurry. Rain is coming. And God enabled him to outrun Ahab's chariot back to the city of Jezreel. He outran the chariot, but he didn't outrun the rain. The rain came and refreshed the land. If you want change in your life, if you want change in this church's life, it has to begin with prayer. 
Can I summarize this whole story simply this way? I, I like the way Philip Keller words it in his book. Before there can come blessing, there must be brokenness. Before there can be refreshing, there must be repentance. Before there can be new life, the old must be put to death. Do you realize that's a pattern God has followed all through history? You've got to be broken before you're blessed, repentant before you're refreshed. The old has to be put to death before the new can come. Has that happened in your life? Are you this morning broken before God, repentant before God, and willing to put the old to death before God so that you might be restored, refreshed, blessed, and renewed in your life. I, I gotta tell you, I'm kinda interested in seeing how Nick Walinda gets along with this walk this evening. I think it's supposed to be televised. Uh, you know, I hope that he makes it across. I, I hope he's the first person to be able to say he's walked across the Grand Canyon. This week, uh, reporters uh, asked the 34-year-old Walinda if he was afraid of walking across the Grand Canyon. He said, no, he wasn't afraid of walking across the Grand Canyon. Then he added this. He said, I would say the only thing I fear is God. I don't know anything about his faith. But boy, that tells me a lot. If his fear and respect for God is the only thing that's fear in his life, he's on the right road because that says his priorities are straight. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. His priorities may be straight, are yours this morning. Do you fear and trust the one who sent fire from heaven to change a nation and who can change your heart?